Episode 59, we have Vincent Viz joining us on the Passive Hang. Vincent is a movement teacher who resides in Dublin, Ireland, and in addition to teaching regularly in person, Vincent shares amazing resources both on hand balancing and the art of floor work online on platforms such as YouTube and Instagram. He also has some online programs such as the Floorwork Academy, which I recently enrolled in and am very much enjoying. Vincent has a very particular and special way of breaking down complex movements and concepts. So I really wanted to find out a bit more about how he thought about teaching and how he got into this whole thing in the first place. This is a really great conversation and I hope you guys enjoy. We're going to get started. I'll see you in the episode. You can just jump straight into it. So, um, hey guys, uh, this is episode 59 and I have Vincent Viz joining us on the Passive Hang, which is awesome because um, I've been following Vincent's work for quite a while now to seeing like the YouTube tutorials, uh, Instagram content as well. Always really helpful, just super practical insights and um, breakdowns and so even recently I, I took the jump and I, um, I bought one of Vincent's courses for the Floorwork Academy and I've been working through that which has been really great. It's been um, breaking down things even further and just adding to my own perspective that I've been developing as well so keen to ask you a bit more about some of the concepts that I've been unpacking there because I think uh, it would be a uh, really interesting for people to hear as well but um yeah welcome to the show vincent thank you very much for having me i'm very happy to be here um so where are you based at the moment so you're in ireland i'm in ireland yeah i live in dublin i've been living here for the last too long eight years originally from france yeah yeah what brought you over to ireland well it's always the question you see people are like especially irish people would be like why did you leave paris to go to ireland does that does that make sense and it's either work or a girl or a partner rather and it was a girl back then then i stayed for work i became a teacher here and that's actually something that we we could i suppose if you if we are to dig into the the genesis of this project being in a different country sometimes offers a different set of circumstances and possibilities. So Paris, as one may imagine, is very saturated and very elite-based when it comes to movement. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes maybe a bit too traditional and conservative. Versus Ireland was a fresh, blank slate. So I went there, there was nothing, and that's pretty much how it started. So initially, love, and I ended up staying for movement. That's a nice little... Uh... Maybe your love's got swapped around, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got more in love with movement, right? But um, yes, with uh, the movement thing, how did you get started in all this? Has this been like a really long journey for you? Have you been practicing, you know, from a young age? Maybe take us through that. So, um, I mean, I started very young, yeah, but I was never consistent with my practice. I started with martial arts. And I would always swap the form of martial art I would practice or fighting sports every two years. So I never got good at any of those. But from the age of, I think, four or five all the way up to 15, I kept going from one to the other, Jet Kundo, Judo, boxing, kickboxing, blah, blah, blah. which was great. And I suppose this gives you a sense of 
body awareness somehow it has to like there's no way you can mm -hmm. not learn something about yourself getting punched in the face and trying to dodge um and then i moved on to capoeira as we were discussing just before we started uh, this podcast and it took me a while because part of me and that's something i really work with on more of an emotional basis here with my classes but to be very honest part of me kind of refrained from taking it because I didn't see capoeira as an actual martial arts or, you know, fighting practice. There was something very dancey about it, which made me uncomfortable. And at the time I was really not the dancer. And I, I had, or rather my, the culture in which I evolved had those preconceived ideas around dancing as a male. And that was true. And whether or not I was conscious of it, it was affecting my choices. But then I, at the tender age of 15, I was like, no, this looks cool. And because it looks cool, I want to try. And so I ended up moving on and uh, starting Capoeira, which I did for four years. And my group uh, in Capoeira, for the listeners who may be quite new to this, or maybe have seen some videos, but don't know quite much about the universe, some groups, there are different groups, different schools, if you will. And some groups are much more fighting oriented and others are much more how could we, could we say that aesthetic oriented in some groups dancing on the floor is kind of welcomed in others we're pretty much kicking each other in the face again and again and again and my group was less on the dancing side versus the more it went the more i started allowing myself to accept the fact that i really like that part that's what they call floreo right in in portuguese and so at that point, I decided to start uh, circus acrobatics to add some form of acrobatics into my capoeira game because I, I sucked at it massively. I was very bad, couldn't hold the handstand, couldn't, could barely do a cartwheel. I was not the best student at all. I was not very flowy, let's put it this way. <laughs> so um, Paris is rich with uh, those kind of classes. So I, I did four or five years of acrobatic practice a few times a week. Was that at a circus school? It was a circus school, yeah, which was, which was open to external people, as in you didn't have to be an actual circus student. Oh, that's cool. And you had a mix of professionals and non-professionals, which is great. It's really a great environment to learn from and a great environment to infuse yourself with obsolete teaching techniques, which I didn't know any better back then. But I <laughs> kind of saw that from the sidelines as I was learning, seeing that year after year, some people kept getting injured and year after year, despite their efforts, others didn't really progress, but a small group would indeed be able to do their whatever, like handspring, handspring, double backflip and good for them. But the rest of us, we were a bit stalling this way. Anywho, the, um, the appeal of it was very strong at the time because it looked so good and I'm sure there's a layer of ego around that, but I really enjoyed that part and I dropped Capoeira completely. And then love brought me to Ireland and Dublin is not Paris in that regard at all. And I felt very, not underwhelmed, but unable to keep my practice alive because at the time even more so, there was no circus school, if you will. There was no, and the standards were not the same. 
and you had to travel so much more to whatever. And Capoeira, I think they have one or two big groups here, one big, big group, but that's all. It's very small, which is great in so many ways, but at the time I was just struggling to keep my practice alive. And so after a few months of being disappointed, I ended up um, finding what is now known as the Movement Studio in Dublin. And the Movement Studio, um, owned by, by Andy Myers, who is a good friend, at the time they were uh, building their practice around what Ido was pushing forward, Ido Portal. And at the time, Ido was getting bigger and bigger as well. It was the, the golden age of the movement culture, really, when the grew out of the ground really yeah. um, and so I, I recognized myself in that space because I suppose one of the good things are of course there's good and bad things I suppose about it but one of the good things about the movement culture is that they they allow many influences in and so I, as much as I I would go to the classes and practice ring strength and everything that's kind of taken for granted those days but I would have the space to do my own stuff, my own floreo at the end, my own little movement on the floor. Mm. And that became also a training space for me to just learn on my own. And then I got influenced by different teachers I've met in workshops, mainly Tom Wexler, six years ago. And I realized that that part of capoeira that I really liked, floreo, could be even bigger if I allowed myself to bring my butt and my back on the floor. <laughs> and that dancing was actually very manly in a way. It was actually, you know, all those preconceived ideas that which I had when I was 15, they kind of melted away once I saw him specifically move. And I realized at that point, and I was around 26, that this is what I wanted to do. Mm. and there with my practice that's a beautiful journey and um yeah really nice to hear how those influences has culminated in your into your decisions because i was wondering like how it seems like right now um you know you've developed a certain specific sort of focuses as, as well um and so what do you what do you think it was exactly about what tom wexler sort of did he communicate something verbally or like what sort of clicked within your mind well i've met him and i got to to to, to in later on i got to to train with him and then this is i suppose how you become first the practitioner you want to become and eventually the teacher you want to become by getting inspired here and there but then reflecting on what how you would frame things yourself and what actually clicks for you when i first saw him there, there's two things one as i was saying the fact that he was allowing himself to go on the ground which is not allowed quote unquote when you do capoeira for me was a big eye opener because of course they do that in contemporary dance but i would never allow myself to really embrace and appreciate what contemporary dance was until then and suddenly you have some someone who has a very strong capoeira background who is a dancer and emerges both universes so well i was like actually this is the floreo part of capoeira, but on steroids. And I want that. I like the way it moves and it's not clashing with how I feel about myself and my own sense of identity, quite the opposite. It's liberating. And so it's more the, the visual of it, the smoothness of it, which now I'm trying to teach uh, my own way, I suppose, that really appealed to me and made me realize that this was what I was always searching in circus, always searching in capoeira, 
and maybe earlier on in the in the martial art practice I've had. So I was like, yes, I found it. So finally, after you know jumping from one practice to the other, I found the practice that I want to dive into. What do I do now? Well, now you just learn on your own because Dublin was very scarce with uh, learning resources. And so as much as I am one of the YouTube people those days at the time, I spent my hours in that studio going frame by frame on the few videos I could put my hands on trying to decipher what they were trying to say or show. And that's how I became a teacher. Yeah, I was going to ask about um, how you went learning it. So did you have did you have specific teachers for a long time as well to help guide you or you really like uh, were very self-taught with this area? Very self-taught, very self-taught because I didn't have the means either to travel around the world and learn, you know, for extensive periods of time with teachers, which who will, who would inspire me back then. So of course I've met a couple of them. I've done a few workshops, but you're talking about one or two days here and there every semester. Enough to give you a shot of inspiration, not enough to really progress. As you know yourself, you have to, you have to hustle. Mm. <laughs> you have to put the hours in. So, but fortunately enough, I had access to this studio. And so once I recognized the form and how it looked of the practice I wanted to dive in and become good at, then my mission was to gather as many videos and resources I could put my hands on, including, including contemporary dance videos, including capoeira videos, look at the movements I really liked and try to deconstruct it. And at the time I was not teaching, of course, I was just a practitioner who wanted to push his practice forward. But this, this forced me to really, one, acknowledge how badly taught most things are because mm -hmm. people just show you what they can do at best they show you the way they have learned it but they don't show a way that would fit most people and of course because there is no feedback if you are faced with an obstacle well you have to keep at it until you circumvent that obstacle and so this whole yeah, self-taught with videos, frame by frame, pausing, playing, pausing, playing, rewinding until it clicked. And little by little, a small curriculum was being built this way. I'm giggling because this is like exactly what I'm doing as well. And um, I've really learned to master the art of like screen recording on my phone or on my computer and saving the files and then slowing down as well. And sometimes you don't get pieces of the puzzle because it's at a certain angle, but then you um, will see somebody else do it and you're like, oh, okay, that's where the hand is or that, that makes more sense or something. Or even if you see something done badly, sometimes it almost helps you more versus someone who performs it really well because mm. you, from the mistake or it's almost like a half step towards the final, you know, perfect form. You're like, ah, oh, okay. Like maybe I can try that. And yeah, that's something that I've noticed as well. But uh, yeah, something Absolutely. maybe I wanted to uh, just jump in a bit deeper on is about this thing about, um, yeah, learning from, I guess when you go to a, a teacher and sometimes the teacher, it feels nice. You got like a curriculum laid out, the answers laid out versus your own journey. And mm. 
choosing maybe to go without and trying to figure things um, out yourself. Like if you had the choice, you know, looking back on it at certain points, would you have, if you had the resources, would you have chosen to get a teacher instead or would you have stuck through this way that you've learned? No, I think that back then, if I have to be honest, I was just trying to be good at that thing, not necessarily seeing myself teaching it eventually. So of course, when you go through that hard journey of learning it yourself, compiling all the videos, learning it, as you were saying, that's very true, learning how to do it wrong so that you can do it right. This is such a powerful tool, which I use in both handstands and flow work for my students because everyone chases perfection, not dismissing the fact that if you learn what wrong, quote unquote, feels like, you're more likely to do it right later. But if I put aside what I became as a practitioner, no, I would have hoped I could find a mentor who would just tell me what to do and how much volume and how much rest. <laughs> you know, but it acts, now I know better that this is much more complicated than that. And I think that I suppose the happy medium between both is some form of guidance and within the guidance space to explore, space to get lost space to find your own answers. I teach handstands, for instance, in person those days quite a lot, more, more so than flow work because of COVID and restrictions of space and whatnot. And the first thing I tell new students is, I need you to be able to reframe what I'm going to say to you because the words I'm going to use are not the words which will click for you. And I like to ask people to picture learning a skill as an adult as being in their brain and there are buttons that you need to be able to see first and then to push. And for instance, for handstands, it's gonna be about aligning your pelvis over the shoulders, over the hands, which, which is extremely hard for most people at first. And they need to be able to feel what it feels like to be in that position and then to label, use your words to describe to me what you're doing when you do that. Because what I see you're doing is shoulder flexion is that tilt of the pelvis is such and such, which I know are important, but you may feel it in your core, for instance, mm. this whole core conversation of, you know, movement teachers those days, they know better and they're like, no, core is bullshit. Of course it is when it comes to handstands. But if this is where the student feels it, and if by squeezing their core, they manage to align their pelvis over the shoulders, well, the problem is not so much what they are doing, it's what they perceive they are doing. Mm. And rather than put that label, squeeze your core on that button in their brain so that they can push it consistently and access it very easily, rather than being dogmatic about what is, because I know better because I'm a teacher. Sorry, I went down on a rant here. <laughs> I forgot what the initial question was, actually. Now, this is a good point, though, about um, using language that is appropriate for who you are trying to teach in your audience, right? Versus mm -hmm. just the general label of going like, hey, this is um, this is what I found to be correct. And so generally it must be always correct, right? So yeah. I really like this point, yeah. Well, sorry, and you, you were talking about the, what would I do what I would, if I had the choice of being coached? And I think, yeah, I would have had the, be the best of both words, which is, the space to be lost, the space to find your own answers. 
but guidance so that it doesn't become overwhelming, guidance so that you feel that you are making progress on the technical side of things. But technique is just one of the aspects, I think, without getting too philosophical about it, mm. of this movement journey and practice, yeah. And when did it start coming across your mind that you might become a teacher? Well, as I was training on the side after the ring strength sessions and whatnot in the movement studio here in Dublin, people started gathering around me and capoeira being so unknown here. They were like, what is this? And all oh, teach me how to do a cartwheel. And I knew better that my cartwheel, if I compared it to the circus acrobatic standards, I mean, there's so much to a cartwheel. People don't realize that there's so much to it. It's, it's the same for gymnastics, but for movement and capoeira and dance, not so much. And suddenly I understood that it was all a matter of standards. Can th There was this thing, this imposter syndrome, of course. I was like, who am I to teach you when back in my circus school, I would be an intermediate student at best, but certainly not an advanced one. And then I realized that people are at different stages of their journey. And some people who are maybe earlier on that journey, more beginner than you are, they could benefit from what you have to teach them, provided that you don't make the mistake of being dogmatic, just like you have been witnessing all those years with people teaching you the way they have learned and thinking it's the only way. And so I realized that maybe I had something to give to them. And as much as I was trying to fight it, they kept coming for it and saying, no, this is great. And I saw some progress. And I was like, actually, you know what, maybe maybe I can teach and maybe this is actually quite enjoyable. I really, I've always enjoyed teaching, mm -hmm. um, but I've allowed myself to teach once I saw that they were finding something in what I had to propose, which is something I really didn't want to accept because I was too self-conscious, I suppose. And again, that's the beauty of having moved to Ireland, I suppose, because in the very saturated markets that, Paris would be and France in general, I suppose, it would have been much harder to do that, much, much harder. But in Dublin, people are just more open-minded because there's only so few resources you can cling to. And that created the space for me to, so I, I got the first, how do you call that? I got the first group of students and we had those classes called Floreo with two O's, a mix between floor and floreo. <laughs> yeah, I like it, and it yeah. Was, movement classes because at the time i was like i'm not a dancer i'm not an answer and flow work was not a, a word in my horizon just yet but then those that group got bigger and then i got a second group and then i ended up morphing a bit um the content of it stepping away from my teachers or the influences from the teachers i had seen from isolation, integration, improvisation, from all those stuff, all that stuff, and moving more into my own teaching because I had the perfect group of guinea pigs which, with whom I could experiment with. Let's try this. Do you get this? No, why? And always understanding that if the student doesn't get it, it probably is my own fault. Mm. So then I would go back to the lab and think. Yeah, so how do you think that, um your teaching process has sort of evolved over the years. Um, obviously, you're saying a lot about, uh, you know, being aware of spreading dogmatic views and, um, you know, starting to come into your own 
as being a teacher. Um, so maybe could you expand a bit about maybe when you go into a class or you think about a curriculum, what is sort of top of mind when you are about to, you know, address the class? Well, first I should, I should mention that although it's the intent, it's my intent not to be dogmatic. I necessarily am. It's just, I'm aware that I have this bias that we all, we all have. And no matter how much I try to evade it, it will still kick in. I'm doing my best to be open-minded, but of course, in that uh, mindset, I still end up on the edges of it being dogmatic. This is that's just the nature of it. So I don't pretend to be more than, than what I am. Uh, when it comes to programming, well, the first question, of course, is whom are you talking to? I'm not going to step into a class the same way if I have my, I still have the students, some of them who started with me six, seven years ago, they're still coming to class today. They don't need much explanation. They don't need me anymore to put myself in the beginner's shoes and deconstruct the movement in such a way that it would make sense for younger me, but it would also make sense for somebody who didn't have my background, which is really what teaching I think is about. You have a movement. What I used to do, I remember when they were more beginner, is I would create a sequence and then I would separate the movements and I would see one movement and I would just take the steps and try to use that. That's something we do in the teacher training I've created. We take, um, we try to infuse the warm-ups and the exploration drills. If a class is comprised of a warm-up, an exploration phase, and then isolation, and then a sequence, and then something else to finish, we try to use those patterns and spread them across the class so that it never becomes about the word and the sequence, which let's face it, if you only learn a sequence for, this, for the sake of learning a sequence, you are going to forget it next week. But if we take those patterns, and we spread it across different drills, they will stay within you. And you will learn them better when it comes to actually approaching the new movement. So I would do that. I would try to feel what the underlying concepts and patterns are, trying to feed them in, into my students early in the class. And then once I thought I was done, do it again, trying to go from, to start from a different perspective. Oh, but what if I don't have a flat foot squat? Oh, but what if I have an injury on my right side? What if I'm afraid of being upside down? And that forces you to really think even deeper about your movement teaching and deconstructing. And I, I would end up, I remember, I would end up spending a full Sunday afternoon, you're talking about four hours, to design a class, and they would learn the sequence in 20 minutes. And sometimes it was a bit, <laughs> it was a bit frustrating and elating at the, at, at the same time because I knew I had done it properly. Mm. But now, of course, for those of them who have been with me for with six years, I don't need to do that anymore because they're so in tune. That we speak the same language. So I can just suggest ideas for them to uh, not only learn, let's say, what I've put together for said class, but also become their own movers and step away from what I think floor work is and find their own ways of doing movement on the floor, which they have to they have to go beyond what I have to offer. That's the goal, right? Otherwise, mm. again, it becomes just a set curriculum and people get uh, imprisoned in it. I like what you mentioned there about uh, identifying like 
the key patterns and incorporating that. It's almost like a, you, you present it under different contexts so that they learn in not just the set sequence, but in these different like learning environments almost so that it can become embedded at a deeper level to be like, oh, okay, now I recognize that pattern here. I recognize that pattern there. Reminds me a lot about how when I was learning a language, um, Japanese, how I could play this memorization game for ages, right? Just keep on like playing this flashcard game or whatever. But it wasn't until I used it in the context of a speaking sentence and then saw it. I know this, especially when maybe I saw it on a road sign and it'd be written there. And I'd be like, oh, okay, now I understand this word. Then, yeah. then it became a whole new, um, yeah, a whole new way to learn. Cause I realized it's like, okay, I need to mix it up in all these different areas for me to like actually learn versus just memorize and then, it would most likely be forgotten if it wasn't like commonly used. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You, we resonate on that thing on that part because I really think that that's why I call it the grammar of flow work really when I teach it's, and I love the analogies with language because I'm a former linguist and yes, if you learn the, the way I like to say it is if you learn one new word per day, opening up in the morning, your dictionary, you will not be bilingual ever, nor fluent. You need fewer words. You need to stop chasing the next new Instagram move. And you need to start integrating that word in different contexts, just like you were saying about seeing it on the road sign and then hearing it in a sentence. That's what the learner has to do. Otherwise you will learn it and it will last only for so long, or you will get frustrated in the process when it's a very high, highly complex movement. Mm. And you mentioned this a bit about how you're preparing on Sunday afternoons, you know, thinking about <laughs> class and then the, how the execution of it. I mean, how, how does one thing go from maybe something that you've learned yourself through to being then flowing on to being comfortable to going, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to teach this, like the distillation process, you know, from learning to then passing it on to some, somebody. Um, yeah. How do you think about that? When it comes to flow work, you mean? Mm, yeah. Hmm. Well, I suppose the teacher's journey is, is very individual specific. Um, and this is where I started being dogmatic myself because I have a very specific view of teaching and of what works and of how nuanced one has to be in the process. But in my eyes, hmm, First, there needs to be a desire, of course, and not everyone wants to be a teacher. and Not everyone should, for that matter. But let's say they want to, uh, and then they, they will be faced if things go according to plan with that imposter syndrome. I think once you have a set of movement which you would like to convey to others, and maybe a practice, a wider practice, so you have the technical side of things, and then you have the deeper underlying layer of maybe philosophy or mindset or practice which you really believe in because it helped you so much and that's what you're trying to transfer through the technique people come for the technique you end up giving them uh, what you think they need which is the root of your practice and so once you start articulating this in your head i think the next step to become a teacher is to be able it's, not even a step it's something we have to make peace peace with being able 
to understand that they are not you. You're not teaching yourself. As long as we think we are, we only are going to cater to a very small percentage of the population that comes to our classes. And so then, do you still love that? Do you still have this inner fire to teach? Because those people, they're not going to get it. Let's put it this way. Mm. That's part of teaching. It's not training bodies. <laughs> you know, it's people who sometimes won't get what you're saying. And if you don't enjoy the process of having to step back and wonder, oh, why did I, how could I say it differently? Then, then you're not meant for that, I think. I think that I've seen that in, in, in great famous dancers or movers across Instagram. Designing, a, for instance, let's talk about the access syllabus. The access syllabus doesn't, um, and I would, be, I would really fail to find the words to describe what they do, but they do something great, that's for sure. Trying to propose a more viable way of moving um, and not necessarily only in the container of dance, but mainly rooting from there, I would say. They don't have a syllabus. They have a set of concepts. They have a very inquisitive practice of having people feel what they're trying to um, teach them. And, and you would spend hours, hours, hours on very tiny details on the floor to a point where that could be frustrating for a beginner, I would say. What am I talking about them? Because they don't have a curriculum. So I'm not saying what the road I went down is one. I really like to have that curriculum because that's the nerdy part of me who wanted to, you know, catch all, catch them all and, and whatnot. But it's not the only way. And some, and I see it in my students as well. Some people are more in that practice for the emotional part of it. They just want to release things and they're very aware of that. And they just want to have fun. Others, usually when they are coming from the movement culture area, they're a bit more nerdy. They want the names, they want the transitions, they want to understand the process behind that or the mental models we have created around it. And I think that um, you don't have necessarily to be in the ladder box, in this ladder category to be a teacher. And some teachers will just thrive with their own audiences at offering a few movements, at not being so technical, at not being so in the details of deconstructing things, but at offering a space for others to feel free to express themselves or to feel free to just mess around. And that's, that's great as well. It's not my jazz and it wasn't when I became a teacher, but I don't want to be closing the door to that. I think it's absolutely necessary today. Yeah, it's a good point. Like when the audience comes to you, right? Everyone has different motives, different bodies, different whys behind why they are curious about getting into the practice, right? And I don't think we can forget that as well, that those reasons could be drastically different to the reasons why we pursue the practice as well. So that, you know, your sense of empathy could be, could be sometimes very aligned and then sometimes very different to what that person is is experiencing in your class. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And um, I did want to have a, a bit of a discussion or um, ask you about for floor work, how do you, mm. like, what do you define as floor work? Like, what's the extent or boundaries of it, if any? That's a good question, actually. <laughs> I think what I liked about the word, let's be like super honest here. I used to call my classes movement classes because it was the trendy word by then. 
but then I realized that really what I liked was not uh, no no offense, no rock thrown here, but I was not so much into juggling with tennis balls and um, stepping on rails and and whatnot. I really liked handstands and I really liked moving on the floor, what we call now for some weird reason locomotion. That's the choice of marketing. Um, and some other people would refer to that as modern dance and other people would refer to that as, I don't know, just being a seaweed and a human mop on the floor. <laughs> and I thought that the term flow work, which from what I gather is more so the special area of for contemporary dance, for instance, flow work would be the part that is dedicated to the floor. And the same would apply to pole dance, if I'm not mistaken. Like, I mean, before it became what it has become over the last few years, which is a, a, a synonym, sorry, for locomotion somehow, or groundwork, it was in a specialty area within dance. And I like the fact that it says floor and work. And it, for me, but that's for me, I think everyone's going to have their different answers for that or definitions. It entails anything, any practice that can be done with the floor, with the following nuance, with a sense of seeking smoothness and fluidity. And somehow this is where the interpretations are going to differ because if you think of um, breakdancing, of course, technically speaking, they're doing floor work whenever they go on the floor. But where they are after might be a bit different from what a contemporary dancer like Tom Wexler maybe, or from a, what a movement culture, locomotion-oriented person might be after, because it's going to be much more broken, much more hectic, much more linear, and the flavor and out of it is going to be much like very, very different, I think. So... At the end of the day, if it involves a floor and you moving around, whether you are doing this like animal flow, you're doing this because you want to get fit or you're doing this because you want to get more coordinated or you're doing this because you want to express yourself with the music and dance your, you know, <laughs> your emotions away. To me, it's flow work. Um, I do tend to practice it only on a specific floor, but I don't think it matters. You could do that on grass, you could do that on concrete. As long as you're finding something that feeds you that involves moving on a floor and therefore appreciating the relationship between your body, the floor and gravity, technically it's floor work. And then everyone makes their own soup out of that, I suppose. Yeah, it's very interesting, the whole thing around um terminology and how words they develop over time and as you said like suddenly locomotion like props up flow work props up you know soft acrobatics props up and you're like oh what's all this about this is like Mm -hmm. is this new has this been created it's um but it does it is i guess terms where after a while they keep on existing as well. And you go, ah, oh, there is like something, I guess, to that name. Like, as you said, like flow, flow work, there is a, se- a special sense there that it kind of does describe it, it well for this certain type of practice, which is like different to other things such as break dancing or even, you know, forms of contemporary dance where it's got like signatures of it, but it is different, you know, and even if sometimes you don't, can't quite 
define the differences, you can see it aesthetically as well in, in the output. Um, I suppose we could draw a correlation between that and handstands when you think of it, uh, when you think of a professional hand balancer, you know, 15 years, Cirque du Soleil, you see their line and you compare that to a dancer throwing a handstand, coming back down. You compare that to a break dancer popping on one hand, but unable to hold it on two hands. Not to say that they can't, but some of them can do incredible things dynamically on one hand and not hold on two hands. And compare this to just a handstand, um, somebody who just likes them and throw a banana in the park on a sunny day. Well, it's a handstand, you know, mm -hmm. in all those cases. Then the signature, as you were saying, is gonna, is gonna be different. And I think that that's what flow work is. If we just look at this word, um, technically it's you moving on the floor, but I took it down a special um, avenue where it's really about being fluid, moving with a soft floor and, and, that, and that's pretty much it. But I don't think it's the only definition. The same way the professional hand balancer will not necessarily turn head when they see a banana being performed in the park, but at the end of the day, it's still you holding yourself on your hands. So both definitions are valid. And um, with how you're saying about moving with smoothness, with fluidity, I know uh, like in the course, you talk a little bit about like concepts such as like stepping versus gliding or and organizing around supports. Maybe, you know, for the benefit of the listeners, maybe you could share a little bit of insight about how we achieve, I guess, this aesthetic quality or even this internal feeling of smoothness in moving along the floor. Yeah, I, to me, that's the most, it has been the most fascinating part of this work because what is beyond, back to the grammar. Okay, we have words. I want to learn the macaco. Everybody wants to learn the macaco. <laughs> I want to learn such and such move. I want to learn the fish roll. Everybody wants to learn the fish roll. So we have words, fancy words, should I say, words that are worth pursuing maybe. And then there is the connection between them because at the end of the day, if you have very fancy words, very fancy moves, but you cannot put them together in a sentence, then is that really what you are after? And again, just here, I would take a second to backtrack and say, this is not necessarily wrong. There was this whole idea that improvisation was the holy grail and anything else was not mastery. That's, hmm, I think that needs to be nuanced because it depends again on who you are and your end context. And maybe you're just happy enough learning a macaco and being really down, being really into soft acrobatics, for instance. And you just, you just want that move. And that's all. You don't need to be able to dance and move and loco locomote your way around it. So, and same thing for uh, professional performers. They need to nail their sequence, their choreography for the show. They don't need to be able to improvise around it. What's the story with that? So, and knowing what the end context is allows one, well, this is what I'm saying this, it allows one to ensure that they're training the right way and not the way they're being, that they think they should train. Because at the end of the day, if you don't want to improvise, I had students like that, professional dancers, they were struggling with improvisations, but it was not their end goal. So why would I bother having them do too much of that? And of course I would, because it would put them in, this, in an uncomfortable zone, but it wasn't the end goal. So you would change a bit the way you program around that. 
And so back to um, fluidity and back to the, that's this analogy with language, um, I think for me, if those are the words, the macaco is a word, the fish was the word, then what ties them together is the grammar. And what I find fascinating, especially when I started, was why is this person so flowy? Once you look enough at them, you recognize that it has little to do with the words and more to do with the way they put them together. And some people move just beautifully doing the most simple things and others move like robots doing the most impressive things. They're not correlated this way. And so then you start studying beyond the steps. Why is this? Why is my eye caught by this person? What is about such and such mover that makes them so pleasing to the eye? That's a very long, long, long conversation. But what I could say would be for the listener, maybe, you know, stand up on your feet and picture maybe start um, walking across the room as if you were a toddler, just losing balance and catching yourself and never quite stable with your upper body trying to compensate for the awkward step that you're taking. Um, and then gradually transition into your normal gait, transition into your normal walk. What is happening here? You're going from an inefficient walk to a very efficient walk, which is not perfect, it never is. And that's, that's what the grammar is about. How can we make our movement so efficient that um, we go from being a toddler to being an efficient walker? And to me, there's a lot to be learned just from that knowledge, just from that example about the way we learn to walk. If you think of how the feet of the toddler are finding the floor, it just slams a bit more the floor. They're really catching themselves at the last minute. It's not something gradual. Now picture yourself, I don't know, stepping, maybe providing a foot massage. If you were to walk on a friend, they would have a very sore back and they say, yeah, just please walk on my back. You would go very carefully. You would put the heel first and really roll the foot very gradually all the way until the toes find the back of this person. And that's you being able to really change the way your support limbs find the floor. And suddenly we have, of course, something much more controlled and somehow much more efficient. Weight transfer is one of those most important rules. And there are others, as you were saying, stepping versus gliding, spirals. Um, there's a lot of them, at least in the way I have conceived or thought about them. But weight transfer for sure is the one that governs them all. And I think that goes beyond floor work. That's why maybe it's, I think it's worth talking about because when I, in this teacher training that I launched last year, for instance, I would have had martial art teachers and I would have had dance teachers and yoga teachers. And those people are not after the same things in floor work. But for sure, when you say, Weight transfer, they all acknowledge, they all know that this is the base of every practice. Mm. And so back to your question, to become efficient, to become fluid, I think the thought process has to go past the technique, go past the word, and maybe start with this. As you learn this movement, or once you have got the gist of it, what is happening in your in the way you transfer the weight from one limb to the other. Can you alter that? Is this changing the way you can connect the words together? By being more aware of the way we transfer the weight, 
we may be better able to connect the movements together. And then there's a, and it's always about efficiency. The less we, we move like a one unit, like a block of cement across the floor, the more we can segregate the upper body from the lower body from the head. And the more efficient we become, the more, the less calories we burn, as I like to say, and suddenly the more fluid we become. So fluidity, deep down, I believe, is anchored in efficiency. And efficiency itself comes from weight transfer, mostly. I like that example with the, from toddler to just like a, a normal gait, right? But then even going further than that of like intentionally thinking about like softness in gait, mm. right? And I think this is um, what you mentioned there with, especially like around with, with transitions. And I think transitions in different contexts as well is like, you know, my greatest challenge in learning things and trying to piece together this aesthetic quality as well, because you are right. Like when you're starting, you learn something new, you learn these individual words or skill pieces, right? And then you start trying to link them together and you might design sequences for them as well. Uh, but then beyond that sequence, there is this lack of uh, like, how do I can keep on connecting things in a way and return back to them in different contexts as well. And, have this not only aesthetic quality but this feeling of efficiency and weight transfer to to feel smooth because i think normally afterwards if you review the video you normally know whether it's the aesthetic output is versus like um according to your feeling like if something like if you say to do like a chapeo or something like um mm -hmm you can you can feel if that was like executed really well right versus really really clunky and then the uh, the aesthetic sort of confirms your your feeling right and so yeah what i struggle with is focusing and learning like the transitions in different contexts so apart from i guess using maybe sequences to see how different links are around by just doing like a you know i'm going to do skill move a b c B, A, C, that, that sort of thing. Do you have any sort of tips or ways where, yeah, we can, we can practice transitions? Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. It's what, I, it's what keeps me up at night, really. <laughs> um, like, and just to talk maybe about this chapeau, which for the listeners who maybe don't know what it is, it's a capoeira inspired, but we would see that in tricks as well. A little jump on the side, maybe the regression of what the macaco would be with the legs swimming in the air. There's two back to the smoothness part of things. People, we tend naturally to bring our attention too much on the air part of it, on the jump, on what the legs are supposed to be doing for us to take flight, but not enough on the initial weight transfer, the weight transfer that happens before we throw the soft acrobatic movement. And the, and the last one, which is how the leg is going to find the floor. For some reason, just to segue and then come back, on soft acrobatics, we forget about that hand that has to find the floor and we tend to slam the floor with it. That's already paving the way to failure, quote unquote, or to a lack of efficiency in the way we execute it. And even more importantly, once we land, as we land, the landing is the most important part to me of the acrobatic movements. Can we, so uh, imagine that this foot is being swung in the air. Can the foot find the floor 
as if the floor was upon her that you're giving a massage to. If not, it's not going to be efficient. And therefore, if not, no matter how high you go, no matter how long you can stay in the air, it's not going to be flowy. So this is a way to approach, maybe a more conceptual way to approach transitions, which is how is the quality of my weight transfer? Because we're just talking about that right now, but I think that itself, it gives anyone 12 months of practice easy. How can I pay attention to the weight transfer that precedes the movement that I am trying to build and refine? And it's the same applies to the very last one. So the step out of it. Mm. And in terms of maybe more practical tools, um, well, for sure, I think that there's really, if, if um, people haven't heard of it yet, but I would think that by now it's a bit more mainstream, there is huge value in thinking of um, movements in terms of their starting and ending position. And I actually forgot, uh, Ido made that quite famous in his blog a lifetime ago. And then this would have been known in different dance methods as well. So if you learn, let's say in capoeira, we are a lot in a squat position, but we wouldn't really, we will not find ourselves in our butt, in position in which we sit down. These two positions lead into different movements. And so instead of relying on our saturated brain to remember this, we may want to actually, and again, back to different profiles. For those of us who are a bit more nerdy, there is value in just starting to insert, there's value, sorry, in starting to draw maybe a circle that you can call sitting down and start to list all the movements that start from you sitting down and end up with you sitting down. And suddenly you have a realm of movements and you can do the same for your squat and you can do the same from standing up. And depending on your practice, what you're gonna put in that circle, your starting and finishing position is gonna be of course different. In salsa, you will have 10 of them just you standing up in floor work we will have standing up and that's just one just one circle is enough to and to to entail all the movements we can perform standing up and that already gives you a, a bird view of your vocabulary um, and then you can start actively because if you don't do that in my experience we forget some of them and we don't grease the groove and what's important for us to become better at, at piecing those movements together to create richer and richer sentences is to ensure that we grease all the grooves, to ensure that that movement that we haven't practiced in two months is not going to be forgotten. So by having this kind of list, but again, it's a bit nerdy, you can ensure that you don't only do A, B, C, C, B, A, but you, you don't forget about E and F, you know, and H, and you bring them back here. That would be one tool. Um, the other, yeah, let's, 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 this one to me is very, very powerful. Um, and again, because it, maybe it's gonna go slightly against, uh, the movement culture or rather the mainstream, which is great that it's out there. Don't get me wrong, but the mainstream way of learning movement. And that is to, to go back to this exploration bit we were mentioning before. Your... I'm a strong believer that your body learns things. If again, we, for the sake of clarifying things, we allow ourselves to separate body and mind and whatnot. It might be thought of as one thing, fair enough. But for the sake of, of this discussion, we could say that our unconscious mind 
our brain learns things without us being aware of it. That's the definition of it, right? So your learning process, even as an adult, is not going to necessarily be through um, reps and sets and you having decided on A, B, C and working on them again and again and again. More so, without you even realizing it, you may have been learning, let's say, H, movement H, because it's because you've seen it so many times in your classes or you've seen it so many times on YouTube and because it's a close cousin of another movement you know, but you're not even aware that you're learning it. And the problem is if we don't create space in our training environment for us to notice the movements we have learned subconsciously, they never get a chance to actually blossom in what they can become. And there I say, those movements we learn subconsciously, they are our own. They are learned in, with much more ease than anything that we try to steal from somebody else. And so back to the way I would, for instance, program a class for my more advanced students. I would say to them, this is, I would sometimes say to them, improvise and let's film what you're doing. And, we will, and if the, you improvise long enough, but of course they have enough vocabulary to feel comfortable doing so, you will see that some movements we haven't learned together, some movements they have never learned on their own, they come up. And we have created the space to find this letter H. Now that we have seen it, how can we consciously reintegrate it back into our structured step-by-step -step programming? Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's so important because all the words I know in English, for instance, I did not necessarily learn them at school. I heard them once and the next thing, you, I, next thing I know, I'm using it in a sentence. And if I don't catch myself using it, it may be gone forever. Yeah, that's amazing. I really like that. It's like not just almost like having this list of skills that you want to drill and be like, yep, yeah, I'm going to consciously create a process around learning, you know, X, Y, and Z, whatever they are. But then through that exploration, letting something come out, but then through the power I uh, like with the tool of video as well, it could be so beautiful that you can look through it and then notice it as well, because maybe sometimes like you would just do it and then you, you don't consciously notice it. Right. Cause it just manifests and you just do it. Right. But then afterwards yeah. then reintegrating it and being like, Oh, okay. Like that leg swing or that way that you got up was really interesting. Maybe that can be, that can be a move. Exactly. I haven't thought of it Your like move. that. Yeah. Move can be the move. And Back to your transitions, your transition question, rather. Um, sometimes, whether it's something that pops up because you created a space for it, so that that thing you were not aware of, or uh, when it's some, it also works if it's something that you're trying to, to chase but doesn't come up naturally to you. So, uh, what I would call a high maintenance movement, something that doesn't come in one class. Hmm. Well, for the sake of being efficient, sometimes there is huge value in doing your own variation of it rather than holding the standard high forever and never quite achieving it just yet. Allowing yourself to be like, well, I'm going to do a regression. Or sometimes you try to learn something and something else comes out of it. But that's something else that comes naturally because it suits you better at that time. It suits your body and nervous system better at that time. This you can put in a sentence with smoothness. Chasing that thing in for which the bar is too high, you're never going to be able to integrate that um, with fluidity and so if I talk about myself back when I still had a back handspring which I haven't trained in so long I would be scared to try it it would never have been to the to the 
point at which I could seamlessly integrate it within my flow work. So isolating it, awesome. Integrating it, no. You have two choices. Either you keep being frustrated and you never quite reach that bar or you, and for which you're gonna have to dedicate many, many hours. Or when you throw it, something else comes, you kind of like it, it suits your end context, it suits your practice. Well, put a name on that. This is your hybrid backhand spring. Use it because this one, you can create songs with it. You can create sentences with it. This one, you can only open the book and say the word and that's it. I love this because, um, yeah, that's like, you know, as you're saying, everyone wants to learn the macacao, that sort of thing. So that's something that, you know, in isolation now that I can, I can, I can do, but then try and put it in a flow where you kind of like, you know, you're a bit disorientated, you're spinning around a little bit, mm. then you try and like go over backwards. It just like doesn't come out the same way, you know, and yeah. you are right. Sometimes you, you put off as well. And then that might break like the, the feeling of the flow as well, because then you're like, Oh, like I want to return to it, try and do it properly. Or it just feels like very staccato as well. So you don't want to keep mm -hmm. on continuing, but um, yeah, maybe the better approach is just to let go. It just comes out however it comes out. And, but then think about the principle of weight transfer mostly, and just keep on continuing and just allowing it to happen. Not to say that this is, of course, the path towards excellence. Yeah, there, I think different profiles will need different things. And I also think that different seasons of life will require different things. And sometimes we just want to become excellent at technique, in which case there is value in uh, chasing that macaco in mm. your sequence and going back to it and being very regimented in the way you train because this is feeding you because this is what you need and other times life gets hard and it slaps you in the face you get a fistful of light in your face as i've heard which i like the expression and <laughs> and you don't you can't be you can't be bothered mm. like it's just depressing you seeing that you cannot achieve it sometimes is a good drive to achieve more and other times is something that takes you down and then adapting accordingly, I think, is important. And that's, that kind of drives self-awareness as well. All right, I don't have my macaco. My, my you know what? I'm happy enough with a chapeau de couro in which I can transfer my weight properly. And other times, no, no, actually, I want to get the macaco because I don't want to make excuses. Let's go for it. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. Um, how do you think about, like, programming for floor work, you know, like sets reps schemes that sort of thing or as you said in your class sometimes you just get them to work on improvisate improvisation like so how do you think in terms of a session and then maybe you know in terms of a, a longer period as well mm. i again back to hopefully some nuances and taking on board who is in front of you I really have seen in, along the years that people don't react the same way to um, reps and sets. And some people thrive through it because it's the one piece of structure they get at the end of the day after a hard day at work and others just get overwhelmed by it and they do half of it and then they're like, ah, and they start doing their own thing or they start losing motivation. So the first thing when I work with someone, and that's also what I invite my teachers to repay attention to is, who do you have in front of you? And again, some of them will, you, you may change what you need depending on the season 
of life you find yourself in. But adapting that, if you if that person needs structure, then then we can talk about sets and reps. But sometimes it just needs the space, just need to aim for quality. And the moment they lose the drive, the moment they lose quality, they just move on, just invite them to move on to something else. So in the course you're doing, I suggest sets and reps. And I suggest something very basic such as 10 reps to 12 reps each side. But of course, there's two things to take on to, to take uh, into consideration. And the first is that what really matters is more so the quality with which you can execute things rather than reps, pretty much like strength training, really. You don't want to be uh, compromising form for the sake of that last rep. But then again, the movement that you are tackling, that's going to be important. So back to this I, distinction between complex movements and simple movements. If you have a beginner in front of you and you're trying to teach them a rotation into low bridge, you're trying to teach them an advanced QDR, you're trying to teach them a handstand, it's not going to come in one day. So we have to lower the bar in such a way that there is some rewards to be found here. And we have to ensure that in the way we program the class, there are to, in order for us and for them to achieve a sense of flow, we have to have a part in which we're going to feel mastery. And others, including for those movements which are a bit more long-term oriented, in which we know that there's no mastery to be found today because it's a very long game. So taking this into consideration, maybe having a more structured rep set approach for these long-term projects, like a macaco would be, like a soft acrobatic would be, and a more relaxed slash quality-oriented approach for those movements which are very close to what we already know, for those movements for which we're trying to grease the groove, for those movements which we find kind of simple to understand once the steps have been shown to us. Um, because what's likely to happen is that we do a lot of what is simple for us and not enough of what needs more love sustain over a long period of time. So I like to have a frame for reps for those things which kind of shy away from because they're hard and freedom and quality, a quality mindset for the stuff that's a bit more simple. Mm, yeah. It's a nice balance, isn't it? And as, as you said, like it, it is about separating out the ones where, you feel like there's an adeptness and you can just pull it off. Um, but then it's more about, there's always refinement to be had, right? Like that you can keep on working on versus like the ones where it's almost like this game of frustration management, right? As you keep on practicing, keep on trying to do it and it doesn't feel right or it doesn't pull off, but you gotta, you gotta have faith that you put in the work that, that it will come. Yeah. Which I think is such a beautiful teacher as well in itself. When you chase those movements, some of them won't come. Mm. You know, it, it's just, and it's great when they do. And when they don't come, I, it puts you in the spot. It puts you in a place where you have to ask yourself, why am I chasing this anymore? You know, why, why do I want that movement so bad? And that's, I think, where, where the deep layers of, to me, that kind of, those kind of practices uh, I think this is where those layers lie underneath of why why do I want that macaco? And I've been I've been a victim of that myself. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with chasing those beautiful movements. Of course not, because again, the practice itself there is an mistake part of it. 
So we have to embrace the fact that it looks good and we want to look good. But it's interesting when we're confronted with a friction like that to, to, to just stop and inquire, am I going to chase this six more months? Is it worth it? And why do I want it in the first place? It's nice because it's like this um, moment of extreme consciousness as well as you reflect that back onto yourself and you either make the decision that it's like, no, like it's fine, I can set it aside or you go, no, like I really want it, like yeah. it's fine. And even if it's just because it looks good or something, but then you become clear about that, right? That you're like, mm-hmm. I, I just want to do it because I think it looks really cool. Yeah, yeah. Which, which is really nice to, to have. Um, it's, it's nice as well because it's, um, it's deeply honest and we step away a bit from the whole movement is good for you. In, good for you in the health and physical uh, way. Mm. No, no. That thing is good for your soul. It's good for your self-esteem. It's good because you want it and that's absolutely fine. But let's not conflate the two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What are some maybe like uh, most common mistakes you see um, students make? Um, well, hmm. uh, there's so many just to bounce back on, on what we said. One would be to not be in tune with what they need and listen too much to what they think they want. And then that frustration that you were referring to, it builds up and you end up having a practice which is not rewarding. And a practice which is not rewarding is not going to be sustained for very long. And COVID really was kind of emphasizing that because I found myself and I saw it in my students that we needed much more, a much more forgiving practice because whether or not we realized it, all those lockdowns and again, our life, mm-hmm. And I'm not, I don't want to speak for themselves. I'm going to say my life was not miserable at all to complain, but the small aggressions, the small frictions experienced on a daily basis meant that my threshold for frustration was much, much lower. And then you go to, you show up to the room, you show up to the training space and you try to train as hard as you did before. And you don't have, and it's exhausting. It's draining mm. the life out of you. And I think that's, that's a common mistake to not be able to recognize that this is a signal that you may need to readjust the way you train. Your practice should feed you every mm. time. And we won't always be able to, to know exactly uh, how to program accordingly. We will feel whenever we go out of line. And whenever we go out of line, this is the moment at which we have to catch it and be able to change accordingly. Catch it and go back to the baseline here where you're satisfied and you're making progress. The second mistake, well, not to not to to, do, to spend too much time on it, but was of course trying to catch them all, trying to catch all the movements um, at the expense of what connects the movements together, and not reflecting on what is the end context, movement for movement's sake. Okay, why are you going to do with all those floor movements? Are you going to create a show? Are you just do you just want to process your emotions when you're on the floor? Do you want to have a good few, a few good looking movements in there? And in which case, which one do you want to put your money on? Which one deserves your time, right? Which one deserves your time right now? Uh, Those kind of questioning. uh, There is um, a a very good example or image I've I've taken from some business books 
which I really like when it comes to um, programming and reflecting and not making those mistakes. It's um, the um, architects and the, the craftsman or the artisan. And they're saying that if you want to make, if we use that within the, the, the realm of, of training, for instance, of movement, the architect is the one who makes the plans, is the one who has the grand vision. So they are going to plan the training for six months or for if you want to talk about cycles, mesocycles, microcycles and whatnot. And the artisan is the one who shows up every day and builds the dame house. And we want to dedicate time for them both. And what we don't want is to ignore one. And what we don't want is to have them both yapping at each other. Because that's that's when you don't you don't move forward. No, you want every Monday, the first of the month, to ask the architect to sit down for one hour and program the month according to your goals, according to your reflections, according to your inquiries, according on according to what you feel as well. Mm. And then you show up and you sh- and that architect goes on holidays and it's the artisan who shows up and does the work and puts the work. And I, the mistake I see most people, including myself, do is to either not, most of the times to not let the architect do their job. And if they do, to have them to simultaneously fight against each other, which means that your practice on a daily basis is re-stalled and hindered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or it's like... Um to keep on swapping out that vision or the, or the plan, right. That, that you set because you've seen something else or you want something else yeah. and you're feeling a week away from where you are now is different to, to how you feel now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you um, think about like body preparation for this type of practice and, and conditioning. Cause you know, I know for me it's doing all these knee slides, you know, shoulder rolls, that sort of thing. It's, um, it's pretty heavy on the, on the body after, you know, you do like an hour of rolling around. Um, so yeah, how do you keep your body in good shape for this type of practice? That's a long, that's a long, long question. It's, it's fascinating. What, what I believe is, well, first, there is a myth that has to be debunked, which is we can prepare and bulletproof our bodies. This is one of the things I think that was damaging about the movement culture. Um, not to say that it was the initial message, because I will never know that, but the way it has been interpreted for sure, I've seen, was some people ended up believing that with good prehab, you could, uh, you could do anything. And, and that's not quite true. And again, that's not nuanced. Uh, some people will thrive, some people won't. As far as I know, I don't see many gymnasts who are in their 70s throwing double backflips. So there's only so far that prehab is gonna take you. I mean, yes, you could say that maybe they don't prehab properly, but I, I kind of doubt it. I kind of doubt that their prehab is gonna be worse than the average person, even if the average person is really into all those books about it. So the first thing to recognize, I suppose, is there is a lot of, in, when it comes to that, those movement practices, body practices, there's a lot of, unfortunately, self-inquiry 
and ownership that has to be taken. You have to own it because it's not the teacher's fault if you hurt yourself. It's not the teacher's fault if in 10 years your cartilage is damaged. It's your own fault. And unfortunately, you don't have an next revision and neither do I and no one does. And so you're gonna have to take an educated guess. But the key word here is educated. And I think that the practitioner who is serious and practice, practices more than two hours a week, they have to be educated about what may be happening in their bodies as they move around so that they can make the distinction between a bruise on their shoulder when they were performing shoulder rolls, which if you think of it, if you roll on a good part of the meaty part of your shoulder, it's fine. It's your skin and what's under getting used to it versus a sore knee after having, the, after, sorry, after having slid too many times on the floor on an artificial floor, the knee, which may not be designed to be slided on in the first place. So one would be probably fine. The other, what I, back to the mistakes, what I usually hear is, well, my knee will get used to it. Will it? Your knee that's popping out, like your knee, there's no caution on top of it. What do you think you're gonna build here? Like some thick skin? No, be, be mindful and that people, refusing to wear knee pads because of that no because you know if my mood is efficient i, do, I wouldn't need it but you, well in that case practice sensibly go for a few reps but if you go 1000 reps and you on that very bony part of your body chances are unless you're an alien it's not going to end up so well it's just logic like that so the first when it comes to conditioning i think that the, and that's a very deep rabbit hole but the first thing to do is to go down the rabbit hole and start asking yourself, okay, I experienced pain here. I experienced soreness here. Can I make the difference between them too? And can I, can I educate myself a bit on the science of pain? I think that's important because pain is meant to happen in our training and we want to be mindful and sensible in the way we deal with it. And then on a more practical basis, I would say that when it comes to flow work at the very least, the, more, the closer you are to the floor and the softer the practice, unless you're going for uh, shoulder rolls, advanced shoulder rolls, in which sometimes the neck gets a bit more compressed than it needs to. If the head bears some weight when you're performing a shoulder roll, you're not, you're maybe asking for trouble. So a lot of the work when it comes to being very, very close to the floor is around making sure that the neck is kind of always free. But then as the pelvis raises of the wall, of the floor, sorry, we start loading a bit more our wrists. We start loading a bit more our feet. And then when we start throwing acrobatic movements, it becomes even worse because we have to be able to absorb the landing. And some understanding of biomechanics when it comes to the ground reaction when we land out of an acrobatic movement, maybe a bit too much to ask for the general practitioner, but is absolutely a must for any teacher. If we're not bending properly, if we don't have good range of motion at the hip, at the knee, at the ankle, at the toes, to absorb that shock wave and ensure that it propagates properly, then we ask, again, we are asking for trouble. So we have to be aware of that. We have to be aware of the fact that even though we know it, we, don't, we, won't, we will never be able to assess how much is too much and how little is too little. And then maybe, when it comes to learning those movements which are a bit more explosive, which are performed with the pelvis off the floor, there is apparently good scientific literature 
that goes in favor of strength training. And so in my eyes, if the person is after a kind of floor work, which is more explosive with chapeos de codos, macacos, hand spins, QDRs, QDRs are so heavy. Mm. Then we need to condition at the very least with um, exercises targeted at tendons and muscles, uh, if not actual strength training uh, for the lower body with uh, barbells and whatnot, because it seems to be that it is supportive of this kind of practice, the very same way professional athletes would go and train this way to become, uh, to, imp to improve the performance and how sustainable the practice is. Really practical breakdown there. I, re I really like that. And um, yeah, it is, um, again, back to how terminology develops over time, right? Just like the floor work or locomotion, like with the term bulletproof as well. It's like the, um, the power and, but sometimes the hidden danger as well of, of language as it develops. Um, I wanted to ask as well for your current practice, like mm. how, what does that actually look like at the moment? Oof. <laughs> um, it has changed post-COVID, if I have to be very, very honest. And it was interesting because in the process, it's a never-ending process of uncovering the layers of that onion that you keep peeling off. And you find that your sense of identity is attached to things that you thought you were beyond. So before COVID, I would have had some, a much stronger technical practice, much stronger. And again, not being able to access the studio was one problem. Um, not having as much time was another, uh, having a threshold for toler a tolerance for frustration lower was another. And so I, the more it went in 2020 and 2021, and the more I found myself needing the space for release, what I acknowledge flower can be for me, which is just roll on the floor and see what comes out of it. The moment I would try to, I would see a movement which I liked, which I would like to add to my curriculum, which I would like to change and transform and make my own, which I would like to teach to my students. This takes time. It's, if I want to do it properly, it takes a lot of time, especially if I want to teach it, because learning it's one thing, teaching it's another, as we said before. And time and patience and frustration, which I didn't have <laughs> much back then. So my practice at the minute, and then it morphed into something that's more maintenance, we could say, more self-care because I'm just improvising mainly. And I stop when I reach the point of frustration, I don't push. And a lot of strength training and handstands a bit more those days because they're easy this way. They don't require much willpower. Um, and then on a weekly basis or on a monthly basis, I would ask the architect to come back and I would assess how I feel. And I would be maybe saying, well, maybe you can start, um, maybe, you, maybe this move here that you've seen deserves your attention. How would you spread that in your training? Before I would have been training at least twice a week just on that, on the technical part, trying to develop myself and my skills. It has changed and I, haven't, I am making my peace with it. It's just a, um, 
a matter of cycles, I suppose. Yeah, always cycles, always the ebb and flows of, of the ebb and flow of life. Yeah. Yeah, I think you know you have to embrace that things transform, right? And sometimes you're in places where you know you, um, a really structured practice, and then other uh, parts where you have to learn to let go as well, right? Other times when you can invest like whole days to it versus some days you have no time and you, and, and you can't practice as well. Right. So I think that's just part of life. Sure. Yeah. And then the truth as well is that practice feeds teaching, but takes away from teaching as well. So the time that you dedicate practicing, becoming better at doing things, at learning new things, of course you will learn stuff that you will be able to pass on but that time you could just as well uh, spend it on doing what you already know doing what you already teach but improving the ways you teach it and those days my practice my work is really more around that i am teaching the same thing for the one thousandth time but i'm going to find a different way of doing it and i find that this is also where i find my kick from and that's not for everyone but there's a lot of when I go to the studio and I have to prepare a sequence or I have to teach handstands, me spending time and being like, all right, this, is there another angle through which I could see that from the ground up? How can we rebuild that castle again? Um, that, and then as we were saying before, filming myself and seeing what the unconscious is doing those days, I find that very rewarding because you still, you're still gonna find new things although you're not chasing anything. Yeah, that's nice. And for you, Vincent, like, where is this all heading? Like, um, do you, maybe in terms of your teaching, how do you, how do you sort of see this growing? Maybe in the near future, do you have plans um, for, as things open up for any workshops or like with your online offerings as well? Um, well, things reopening up for sure uh, may mean, at some point in 2022, workshops the way they were two years ago. Um, I, the online, the online really suits me in the way I have designed it recently. So I have online courses which people take and they do it on their own, their own free time. And that suits some people and that's the one you're taking. And that's the first ones I've created uh, a while ago. But then when everything went online, there is something that I was missing, which was individual feedback. And because I really think myself, first and foremost, as a teacher, I was missing this part because this is where, as we were saying before, this is where you see the individual and you're like, you don't need sets and reps. You need that. Or you want this, but you need that. Let's try to find a happy medium. Or you don't see that you're not transferring the weight properly and you're too attached to this shiny object here let's try to change accordingly and so i missed that and i've been ever since covid happened trying to find a how do you call that a method or a format that suits me providing the student as much information as possible while being able to give them individual feedback and i really see this format carrying on even as things reopen because first, it allows me to spread beyond the borders of the countries I would travel to. And I'm really based around France and the UK. Um, 
and and so being able to work with i had somebody from hong kong recently it was just amazing like being able to work with them and on a weekly basis mm. touch base and correct them i think this is something i'm really happy that um, it exists now and it, it developed through covid so this is to me the future of my teachings and then yes workshops but workshops there's only so much you can do in four hours or in two days mm. so it's a nice way to get into the work but where i think both the students and I find our uh, best synergy is when I work with them on extended, extended period of times, as in three months. And that's why this la the last format I've, I've chosen, which was the teacher training, uh, it, it, it ticked a, a good few boxes because you're, you're committing for three months and for every week, I'm going to see you. Every week, I'm going to see you and say, this is good. You haven't done that. Do this. Oh, by the way, did you see that movement which you didn't realize you did, which, which is awesome? This is even more important than the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And then you get into so much depth because who's going to do a teacher training except someone who's really into floor work? And so you have the people who are nerdy about it, which I think resonate the most with my uh, way of teaching. And that, that works well. And if I could find maybe a way to add some in-person into that, starting from next year, then I will have a hybrid format, which I think is the future of so many practices, a bit of online, a bit of in-person, a bit of on your own with a group, trying to connect them all and have the best of all words. Yeah, I think by this time, if you haven't really figured out an online offering, then you probably never will. The, <laughs> the future is, uh, yeah, yeah, hybrid. <laughs> It is, yeah. It's hard, though. It's very hard to know. Yeah. It is, it is. It, and it involves quite a, a, an adaptation as well to, um, uh, to people and your yeah, skill sets as well. So um, outside of training, though, like and, and teaching, because I know you enjoy that very much, like the, the passion as you speak about it is, um, it is very prevalent. Like what do you enjoy maybe like on a day where you – it's a deload or you're not training at all, what might you do? Um, that used to be very, a very tricky question when I started because what used to be my deload, what used to be my passion became my work. And that's, we, you, you would have heard of the, the, the pitfalls, but you only really experience them once you fully move full-time into them, into that. And then you're like, ah, what do I do now? I train more. What do I do now? I train more. And then you burn out. So, um, what I do now, I'm trying to, yeah, I haven't developed a love for any other activity. That's for sure. Uh, not to say that I haven't tried, but um, I wouldn't say that I have another hobby, physical hobby, like climbing or whatnot. I do spend a lot of time or more and more as much as I can in nature and reading. And then, yeah, that mixture of things plus all the unspoken uh, readings and trainings about business, which you necessarily have to go through in that changing time, in those changing times that we are living in. That is how I structure my life aside from training. Yeah. It's a discipline that I have to take. I don't know if I'm the, I don't think I'm the only one from the conversations I would have had with others, but I know some people are really good at that. I don't think I'm very good at that because my default would be to go back to that space. However, the moment I go back to that space, somewhere in my mind, I know that work mode is on. 
so it's a it, it's a process i think i'm still in the midst of that process right now yeah yeah it, but it's um it's sometimes those things as well where you know that you can't just keep on going back to the same thing as well and that there are other areas that um yeah you need to turn your attention to and sometimes give give a little bit of time energy focus and and love and then from that then it also helps create helps you create even more within your your own passion or, or your work as well it's, it feeds back in it's true but 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 finding i don't think that finding something that um nurtures and feeds you is that easy when i look around uh, and it's not just to give myself any excuse because I'm really happy with my reading practice and seeing people and going back to France to just resource and revigorate myself. Um, but when I look around, it's true that it's a privilege. I think people have to realize that if movement is your thing, then you want to honor that because it's your, um, it's your gateway to learning more about yourself and letting go of things and releasing tension. It's, it's a precious thing that not everyone has. And for some others, it's going to be the gym and others going to be something else. But for a good few people I've met, there is none of that. There's a, a, a very shallow set of practices here and there, but um, not as nourishing as the one practice so if your listeners have found that in movement then then i invite them to really um honor it honor that space and take that good care of it because it's something that allows you to go on with life and really be balanced well, these have been beautiful words vincent i really thank you for your time maybe just one last question would be you know now that you've spent eight years in ireland you know, what do you miss most from your from france <laughs> Uh, I don't want to give you the simplistic <laughs> answer of baguettes, croissant, and, and red <laughs> wine, cheap red wine. I do miss the, you know what, something, something funny. Um, I, miss, I miss the thing that made me live or that I hated when I left, which was the complaining. They're famous for complaining. Yeah. What is beyond the complaining is a cultural. I'm not saying I'm, I want to go back into that space, but there's a cultural um, acceptance of being not being agreeable and speaking your mind, including to strangers, and showing what you're made of, as in showing your vulnerable sides. Some sometimes. I am complaining because such and such is not great. But when you say that to someone, you're actually opening up to showing them what's not so right in your life. Mm. And I, different cultures will gravitate, will just articulate themselves differently around that. I'm not saying it's a great trait. I'm saying I actually miss it because in the Irish culture, we really like to not speak about that. Or it will, you will have to wait a very specific time to do it. And there is, I don't know, there's something about where I was, of course, it's, 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 my, it's in my DNA, but there's something about meeting a stranger and saying, how are you? Good. You know what? Not so great. Oh, why? Ba, 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 ba. Mm. That and red wine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time, Vincent. You. It's been thank awesome you. to um, yeah find out more about you. I've been really enjoying learning off from you via the course. So I do, you know, if anyone is thinking about 
learning about floor work, then I do highly recommend diving in, seeing your offerings and, and taking and, and seeing what it is like for themselves. So, um, yeah, appreciate that you've put that work out there as well. Cause you know, sometimes it's hard to find these resources as well. So I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time. It was great to get to meet you and to talk to you. I hope that your floor work is only going to grow from now on. Yeah, well, just like you, I just keep on, um, yeah, just keep on being consistent, be the artisan, and uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> let it work in harmony with the architect. Super. Best way to wrap this up. Thank you very much. I'll be in touch. That was episode 59. Thanks to Vincent once again for jumping on the passive hang. Really appreciative of sharing his time and his vast depth of knowledge there. I hope you guys got something out of that. And I really do encourage you to check out all his resources online. He has a lot of them for free. You can go all through his Instagram, you know, you can keep on scrolling back and you'll keep on finding all these free tutorials. And that's the same with YouTube. So it's really a valuable resource open to anyone. And for those who want to explore it even further, you can get in touch with him directly because I know that he offers online coaching. But also, if you want to partake in one of the online programs, such as what I'm doing, I highly, yeah, I highly recommend it. I'm really learning a lot from it. Uh, there are certain concepts which I was not aware of and that he is able to explain quite clearly both um, through the video content but also just in words which are making things click on a deeper level for me. So yes, check it out. All right, guys. Well, thanks once again for tuning in, uh, for sticking with all the way to the very end. If you guys have any questions, um, any recommendations for guests as well, please feel free to reach out to me directly. That's either on the website on thepassivehang.com or on Instagram, you can find me at P. That's at P-H-A-O-N-P and send me a message. All right, guys, I'm going to wrap up for today. I'll see you guys in the next episode. And uh, yeah, have a nice one.